morning, everyone, uh, and good afternoon, depending on where in the world you are. I wanted to start uh, thanking you uh, for joining us today. At IFPRI, we have been working on many topics and initiatives related to the World Trade Organization, and more specifically, the ministerial, the 12th ministerial conference. We organized a series of virtual regional dialogues to look at how policies affecting trade in food and agriculture can better deliver on food security, environmental sustainability, and other public policy goals in the current context of COVID-19 and the ongoing WTO negotiations in the run-up again of the 12th ministerial conference. And we also worked on a book that was launched a couple of weeks ago to provide analysis, ideas, and proposals on the main issues to be addressed at the 12th ministerial conference of the WTO and the other topics that are relevant for the consolidation of the WTO as the main trade organization and agricultural trade in general. Trade in food and farm, um, has been, farm goods has been disrupted by the coronavirus outbreak. The farm sector is also under increasing pressure to respond to environmental challenges, especially climate change. With the WTO's next ministerial conference postponed due to the pandemic, ongoing tensions between major economies and current structural impacts in the areas of trade and food security, given the pandemic, both the substance and the process of the talks in Geneva on updating the global trade rulebook has been affected and gained even more importance in finding uh, solutions. As governments revisit, these priorities in this new context, they must think on strategies that can contribute to the recovery from the pandemic, but also to improve resilience to future shocks. So today, we will concentrate in only one of the pillars of the agreement on agriculture, which is domestic support. So the use of subsidies and other support programs that directly simulate production and distort trade. Given that there are still concerns about domestic support levels, product-specific support, and the possibility of green box payments increasing in the future. So today's event will cover the report uh, that IFPRI researchers uh, did, and also a book chapter analysis, looking at different alternatives to solve these issues and their potential impact on international markets and agricultural trade. Exploring new disciplines has concentrating on reducing all forms of trade restoring support and proposing new disciplines that will have minimal impact on current applied levels of support, prevent a backsliding and provide a framework for the future reform. Both publications can be found in the IFPRI event page, um, the one that you use to register for this event. Those two links are also included there for your future references. So this event will be as follows. Uh, David Laborde, um, Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI, and Joseph Glover, also a Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI, will present the report. And then we'll be followed by um, discussions of Leanne Jackson, she is the Head of Division, the Agri-Food Trade and Markets at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, and also by Nelson Ilescas, he is the Director in Fundación Instituto para Negociaciones Agrícolas Internacionales, INAI. Both of them, I'm not going to go into um, going into the description of their um, expertise and all, all their CV. You can also find it in this uh, in the page event from uh, um, at IFPRI. Um, also, if um, you have any questions, um, we will have a Q&A at the end. And you can please submit your questions using the ifpre.org or LinkedIn or YouTube, YouTube or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. So um, with this, I will give the floor to Joe Glover so that he can, um, he can start his presentation. And again, with last Friday's news about the postponement of the ministerial conference, was a surprise for everyone, but delegations are still working in finding new solutions. Um, and while we're hoping that with this seminar, we can also help somehow in this process. So, Joe. Thanks very much, Valeria. We have a slideshow that we're starts. Yeah, that's great. This up. Uh, good. Uh, so, next slide, please. Uh, I think one of the significant accomplishments of the Uruguay round was the bringing uh, discipline to uh, agriculture in general, but more specifically, to all the agricultural subsidies that the um, 
that we'd seen in the world at the time. And so the, the Uruguay Round Agreement on Agriculture put together a whole bunch of new, brought all these new disciplines in uh, that uh, accomplished a couple of things. One, it capped support levels. Um, it also reduced support levels, but it also encouraged members to move from less, dis, uh, from more disport, distorting forms of support to less distorting supports, all significant accomplishments. However, a lot of exemptions uh, there were a lot of exemptions in those rules. There were a lot of loopholes that some would call uh, that allowed producers to uh, actually, or members to provide a lot more support than uh, I think what had been originally envisioned. Um, next slide, please. And so one of the things that we're gonna do in this uh, uh, first part of this analysis is look at a, a, a question contrived if you will, but one that would assess the impact on agricultural markets if WTO members were to use their full domestic support entitlements under the current WTO rules. Again, it's contrived in the sense that, as we'll see, those numbers are enormous in terms of what countries could actually provide to their producers. Um, but it also suggests that with that policy space, if countries were to embark on subsidy wars, there'd be little under the current rules that could stop them from, from uh, uh, increasing support. So what I'm gonna do is look very quickly at the evolution of the domestic support over the last uh, few years. And then we're gonna talk a little bit using a modeling effort that David will probably go into a little more detail, um, but we, we project baseline spending out to 2030. That is what we expect countries to do under the current rules, but then we also uh, look at a scenario where what would happen if countries were to use their maximum entitlements under the current WTO rules, and there we're going to examine the impacts on prices and other sorts of factors. Uh, next slide, please. So as I mentioned, the Uruguay Round uh, did a very, uh, one of the fundamental uh, rules in the Uruguay Round or provisions was to distinguish between uh, trade distorting support and support that was minimally trade distorting. If it was trade supporting support, it, it was subject to uh, uh, disciplines of uh, reduction commitments and other such, uh, such things. And if it was non uh, uh, distorting or minimally distorting, it fell into the so-called green box and that was uh, support that was exempt from uh, reduction commitments. And so that's very significant in the sense it gave members a clear signal that they could move support if they wanted to provide support to their farmers, income support to farmers and other sorts of support that was non-trade distorting, there was a place to do so. But if you've looked at the categories of, of uh, uh, the trade distorting support that uh, you can see also categories that were also exempt. And part of this was just because of the negotiating framework compromise had to be made. And so there were, uh, for example, uh, uh, a whole category of a support if it was less than 5% of the value of production. If you were a developed country, if you had support less than 5% of the value of production, it didn't uh, have to be added into your trade distorting support. Uh, if, if it were uh, support for a developing country, if it were uh, in the form of investment aids or input subsidies, those too were exempt from reduction commitments. And so as it turns out, we'll see that, that actually there's some very large levels of support in those categories that aren't currently coming under the overall disciplines. Uh, next slide, please. So the, the next, uh, this just shows uh, for the most recent uh, years of notification and that will depend on the, on the individual member. But you can see the, the domestic support, the use of domestic support differs widely across uh, uh, WTO members. And you have some countries like Australia, New Zealand and, and a whole host of, of developing countries that have very, very low levels of support. And then at the upper end, we have a number of high income countries that have, uh, are providing significant uh, levels of support relative to their value of production. Next slide, please. Here, I just uh, choose six countries to look at and three uh, of developed countries uh, in, in kind of the focus of a lot of the Uruguay round negotiations themselves were among the support, uh, uh, the domestic support that was being given by the European Union, the U US and, and Japan. And you can see that actually those su subsidy levels have come down significantly. Uh, certainly if I were to go back in the, the late 1980s, you can see even larger declines, but um, since about 2005, 2007, those support levels have 
pretty much leveled off. So a lot of the reforms that went into place, which again, one of the good aspects of the Uruguay round, all of a sudden uh, those have, have sort of flattened out. On the other hand, and, and if you look at on the right-hand side, you see for uh, some developing countries, note that the scale is different. Uh, so these are smaller levels than, generally than, than what we saw uh, with uh, EU, Japan, and the US. But there are two we've seen years where we've had high support um, uh, and then, um, uh, again, levels that, that we're seeing increasing support coming from um, uh, some of the emerging developing countries. Next uh, slide, please. So what we did in this, this exercise was one, we looked at the current level supports uh, in 2017 uh, under our baseline assumption of about $165 billion uh, US dollars um, that projected those by 2030 to uh, under current baseline, again, business as usual, uh, roughly around 250 billion. But if countries were to use the total amount available under their uh, commitments, that is if they were to maximize support up to de minimis values and, and utilize all of their uh, 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 domestic support commitments, that that could uh, that level could exceed 1.3 trillion dollars, an enormous sum. And in fact, that that is uh, some of these categories, like uh, I mentioned, Article 6.5, the so-called blue box, which is for production limiting programs. Those are exempt under current rules. Here, we just projected forward the current use. Uh, if we were to say what would happen if you were to use that at say 5% of the value of production or boost that to 10%, these, these values could get even higher. Um, so uh, next slide. So what we then looked at is if we're looking at the $1.3 trillion, what would be the impact on production? And, and, and across the board, if you were to just look at the average production for, for the world, uh, agricultural production would increase about 6% over baseline levels. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it was, we'll see that has some very large impacts on, on prices. And one, uh, remember that we're doing across the board um, uh, increases in production. What you can see is that in high-income countries, the, the overall increase is a little less. That's largely because a lot of the arable crop area in high-income countries is already fully utilized, so it's hard for them to actually expand. Um, in countries where there is uh, potential cropland that could come into uh, uh, production or, uh, or conversion from forest land and other sorts of things, which we're not really going to get into in this report, but there that's where you can see some potential increases as well. Next slide, please. So obviously with the increase in production, then that has some uh, uh, big increases or big impacts on on. on crop and livestock prices. Uh, overall crops are projected, uh, crop prices are projected to climb by 8% and um, uh, for livestock products, uh, almost 7%. And you can see that varies a lot by commodity um, where those where we expect big increases in, in production, obviously those are gonna result in larger uh, drops in prices. Next slide, please. And then so the, what we see is big increases in farm income, not surprising these, uh, with, with, with countries um, uh, subsidizing um, their producers to the maximum amount of, uh, allowable under WTO rules. Farm income increases uh, a lot, but it's not a one-to-one -one increase. That is for every dollar increase, the actual increase in farm income is only about 60 cents or so, 60 to 70, in some cases as high as 80 cents. Why? Because for every increase in, in, in farm payments, there's also a proportionate decline due to the fact that prices are falling and, um, and, and farm revenues are falling. Next slide, please. And lastly, there's the whole issue of sustainability. And I think this is really the key point. Okay, so obviously we have a very contrived example where we're maximizing to the, the fullest 1.3 trillion. In fact, very few people, uh, I think that's a, a, an improbable scenario in the extreme. However, what is significant is there are some countries who can afford to actually push up uh, spending a lot more than other countries. And here you can see that under the baseline spending, most countries, 
if you look at farm spending as a proportion of GDP, it's really far less than 1%. So a small percentage of 1% actually uh, uh, under current rules. But if you were to maximize those entitlements, you know, for a lot of the high income countries, it means a little higher, but still significantly less than 1% of, of uh, national GDP, where the countries that are really hurt or would be, would, would be prohibitively expensive are poor developing countries. So if you look at Africa, South of the Sahara, for example, you're seeing their uh, domestic support spending at an, clearly an unsustainable level. And I think this is, you know, this gives a lot of uh, truth to the old adage, uh, the African proverb that when the elephants dance, the answer are the ones who pay the price. Because in fact, the ones who can, uh, uh, you have some countries can't afford to, to put a lot of additional money into domestic support spending. Uh, but the ones who can, of course, are the ones who are, who are potentially harmed the most from this. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to David. Thanks a lot, Joe, and thanks everyone for being with us today. Um, so next slide, please. And I'm going to talk in uh, first in the context of existing policies, what a new discipline can uh, look like and what will be their impact. Next slide, please. So we are mainly exploring the concept of overall trade distorting support that um, was introduced during the DOA round and were actually fleshed in, in the DOA modalities, in particular in revision four of 2008, and that we can basically explain as a simplification of the existing framework, where we bring together um, all the distorting measure uh, into one metric that is consolidated across the agricultural sectors, and we apply new discipline on it. As in uh, the first part of the presentation, we are going to fit this in an economic model, so-called MiraGradep, it's a computable generic real model, that's it, a dynamic one, that of course represent both the, the various primary farm sectors, but also the food processing industry, but also the rest of the economy, uh, because uh, first, agriculture is going to be linked in terms of input and output to, to the rest of the economy. But as Joe has just shown, um, if you start to play with policy that represent a significant fiscal cost, it's important to have a story about where this money comes from. And uh, the fact that um, taxes will have to, to increase basically to, uh, to, to pay for an increase of subsidies or taxpayer can get part of their money back if the amount of subsidies go, go down. Uh, so that's one of the value added of using this type of, of model. And uh, because we are interested in the impact of this discipline, not only now, but when they will be fully in place, in particular by 2030, uh, we have a dynamic model. So agricultural um, sector are going to evolve, prices um, in no baseline uh, actually in real term uh, increase, uh, but also the volume of production increase in developing countries. So, uh, the world in 2030 is a bit uh, different from uh, what we know today, not significantly different, but obviously uh, global, the global south is much more important. And in some of these countries, actually, the value of production increased very significantly. And why I'm raising this issue is because when we use this concept of overall trade distancing support, the policy space is also dynamic because it's anchored on the uh, value of production. The, the current value of production, if you want, we do what we call an Olympic average. So it's uh, the three best year over the, the last five years, but really it's basically follow the uh, value of production. And it's something that is actually can be seen as um, more equitable uh, across countries. And uh, obviously uh, will follow the, the size of the agricultural sectors um, in a more uh, transparent way. So, of course, with this different, uh, with this model, we can look at different indicators in terms of price, volume of production, farm income, national income. Uh, if you're interested by the detail, you will, um, you have access to, to the reports and actually also to the book chapter that um, Balaya was referring to that explores some of these things. But we look at different scenarios also, and basically we also start to see what's happened if, in addition to this overall trade distancing support that 
in our core scenario include both the Ember box, but also what is in the blue box today. What's happened if we bring the Article 6.2, so what can be nicknamed the development box under this uh, discipline. So we know that it's a sensitive topic, but fundamentally, you know, a fertilizer subsidy, the fact that in some countries an Ember box and the other country it's a development box, from how it impact market is actually very, very similar. So what is the reason to keep a development separated? Um, that's a question we explore and hopefully you will see interesting results. Doesn't mean that we don't have uh, special and differential treatment for the developing country, but it's basically in the uh, size of the OTDS that is allocated to them, instead of having a different um, measures or policy classification, if you want, about what is under discipline and what is not. But this overall trading support also is this kind of blanket um, coverage of how much money you can give to your farmers. But we also look about what it means to add a specific product cap, so specific product discipline uh, to avoid the concentration of all your policy space into a few commodities. And I will conclude very shortly by saying, okay, What's happened if you contact if you combine the new discipline with what um, what type of baseline it has been shown by uh, Joe? So, in some of my slides, I will go over to uh, basically six scenario, but just to to give you the insight. Of course, we have a baseline where we keep the uh, the policies as of today, and this just evolve with time um, and the current disciplines. So that's what we call the baseline, and then we introduce this OTDS concept. So amber box and blue box limited to 10% of the value of production in developed countries and 20% for developing countries, China is in the middle. One scenario called OTDS half, when we reduce by half this policy space, so we bring the OTDS concept and we really want to shrink the policy space that exists today. Then two scenarios where we say, okay, in addition to the blue and amber box, we also bring a development box measure into the same discipline. And then the product specific. Next slide, please. So, core message this is not going to put a lot of pressure on any countries to change what they are doing today. Here, you see that basically the type of payment that are done uh, for development will not be really constraints. Uh, of course, things linked to the green box is not constrained, but because the size of the agricultural sectors is actually impacted by other measures. The way that we present some green box payments are, are linked to the size of, of the agricultural sector, so there is a small effect. What you really see is what's happening in the amber box. And the core message here is the OTDS basically remove the bound IMS space that some high-income countries uh, have uh, inherited from the rigor round and can be seen as um, unfair to some extent because they get the de minimis plus the IMS when most uh, countries in the global soft as of today, only the de minimis. So some action is going to take place mini in the amber box. And of course, when we increase the, the discipline by reducing the, the size of the OTDS with the, the red bar, you will see that will be the type of scenario that leads to the uh, highest constraints on the payment that will be done. Similarly, when you add the product specific, uh, the kind of dark blue one, you will see higher discipline. So relatively small impact, and uh, they will be basically concentrated on what is most important from a trade distancing measures, uh, the Ember box. Next slide, please. So because we have limited impact on payments, we also have limited impact on how the production sector react. Uh, don't be surprised by the scale of this graph. So we are talking about minus 0.3%. So all these various disciplines and changes will not impact, at least for this group of countries, production by uh, more than even one-tenth of a percent for all of them. Only high-income countries are relatively impacted, but we talk about one quarter of a point of percentage in the OTDS uh, half scenario, meaning when they lose the IMS, and basically we are cutting by half the existing space they have from the minimis. And what's happened is, you know, within developed developed economies, there is actually significant variation, meaning that group of countries like the European Union that have already uh, reshaped significantly their policies are not going to be impacted by any of these uh, 
in a significant way when um, some Scandinavian or Norway or Iceland uh, that are not in the EU and still have a lot of domestic support as Joe has shown in his, um, in his presentation, will have to, to, to significantly adjust their policies and that will shrink their, their production. So on big picture, no big change, it's just on that. What you see on this graph already that actually uh, we, we have a small positive effect on the production of uh, middle and low-income countries in this OTDL half. Next slide, please. Now that you, you have the story that production shrink a bit, prices go, go up, especially for fiber, so basically the cotton sectors that uh, is going to, to be impacted by that, but other crops also are still small impact. Next slide, please. Um, here on this slide, you see the agricultural export in, in volume. And here we see that, you know, in some case, basically global trade, so total agricultural export, can shrink a bit or expand a bit, depending on where the production uh, uh, expand or not. So typically when you do the OTDS half, you have a, a bit less money given in a country like the US. So farm production in the US shrink a bit. And because it uh, ex um, expand in some of the middle and uh, low income countries that actually some of them are net food importing, total export uh, is reduced. So, you know, reducing trade distorting measure doesn't mean that global trade increase and here is what we see. But overall, positive effect in developing countries and some reduction in high-income countries. Next slide, please. Now, this is the overall OTDS, and basically it gives some policy space that people can use and even want to concentrate in some product if they want. Uh, and today, we already see some pattern with some high level of support, for example, in cotton. What's happened if, in addition to give this overall OTDS constraint and shrink it, we also say, you cannot spend uh, more than a given amount on a specific product in terms of relative support. So what it means is being that overall in this OTDS, OTDS half, we say you can, if you are in a developed economy, spend 5% of your value of production in trade distorting measure. But when you check for a specific product, it cannot be more than 10% of its value of production. And here you see that is going to uh, actually uh, play a role, but in some cases it will play a role in um, the BRICS country. So India, China, uh, Brazil, and, and South Africa, even if in this case it's mainly the story of India and China, where in particular in key staples, they uh, can over-concentrate their, their, their spending on, on them. Uh, and that's where this um, specific product-specific policy may, may, may start to kick in. Still, we are talking about very small impact, and so keep this in mind. We are qualitatively moving in what we expect and what we want, but the, the, the blunt of the shock is very small. Next slide, please. Um, now, one of the value of all of this is actually to reduce the risk of uh, any subsidy war or uh, any significant increase of subsidies that, um, that Joe has illustrated in the kind of extreme case. And what we see here is, Today, we have this 1.3 trillion. So, as 2030, the all will end up with current discipline with already 1.3 trillion dollars uh, of policy space, on top of which you have the development box, on top of which you have the green box. If we just move to this OTDS uh, approach um, and we, we bring uh, 6.2 over the, the, the discipline, we bring it the limit to uh, 1.3. Uh, one, one trillion basically. And if we cut it by half, so the level of overall de minimis, we end up with 550 billions. So it means that actually we are going to reduce the policy space by 800 billions. Policy space that no one is using today, especially in the developing world. And as uh, Joe has shown, uh, for most of the countries, even by 2030, the type of budget cost of using the policy space is so high that no one is really going to use it, especially for the low-income countries. So we are just skimming this policy space and bringing discipline to everyone. And as of today, the, the country that will be more impacted will be either the um, uh, biggest emerging countries or, or developing countries, but no direct impact. On the right-hand side of, of my slide, uh, that you see the 
effect on prices to bring this new discipline in the situation where uh, subsidies will increase. And that's where you start to see actually price effect that will be uh, bigger. Or if you want the reverse explanation is that will avoid to world price to fall significantly if people start to use the, the subsidies. Knowing that you know the type of subsidy wars we are talking about is not something the world has not known. You know, you go back to the 80s. Uh, between the European Union and the US, that was a type of issue that actually triggered uh, the Blair House Agreement and, and the foundation of the Euro Round. So this question of avoiding a potential negative outcome, uh, that, that's it. So next slide, please. Just to wrap up uh, the, the kind of key conclusion. So current disciplines are giving a lot of policy space. Um, and there was from already efforts made by uh, countries during the regular round to put some, at least agriculture, back to the discipline of the uh, GATT at the time and then the WTO. And now, I mean, after uh, more than uh, or nearly 40 years, uh, policies have evolved, the world has evolved, the size of the different agriculture has evolved, and it leads us to a lot of space um, and policy space is not always a great idea, especially when we want to have coordinated uh, policies to tackle the, the challenges of the food system. Using this OTDS approach can already update the rules and uh, actually provide and leveling the playing field when we anchor it on the value of production. Um, so that reflects the different sides of the economy and how it evolved. And that's quite important for uh, emerging or just low and middle income countries for which the agricultural sector is going to grow significantly in the next 10 or 20 years. And what we propose in terms of discipline is not a revolution about what countries are doing today. It's just most a framing about what they can do tomorrow that will avoid potentially the bad subsidy habits that we have done in the past and actually can provide a framework for future reform and increase, I would say, the transparency of the monitoring. Thank you very much. Um, and now I give back the floor to uh, Valeria and of course, uh, Leanne Jackson. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Joe and, um, and David. And um, thank you so much uh, for showing us the existing disciplines and the difference that there are between uh, countries and how they use this uh, support. And then the new disciplines um, when looking at the importance of looking at the fiscal accounts when looking at domestic support and the impact that it will have in the countries. And also how the, um, the um, policy space that it will uh, be available there, that it is not really used today, so that that will be something very interesting. And with this, I will leave the floor to uh, Leanne. Thank you very much. Great, thank you, Valeria, and thanks, Joe and Dave, for that presentation. Um, and it's great to be here to be able to give a few short reflections on this work. Um, so I'll ha I have sort of three three streams that I'd like to touch on. The first one is just how critical the work of IFPRI is in terms of developing an evidence base and rigorous evaluation around some of these um, negotiating questions. The second is going to build on some comments that I've heard around food systems and thinking about different objectives that we want food systems to achieve. And finally, just a reflection on predictability and trust. And what does that really mean in terms of when we're transitioning off of existing policy frameworks? So um, I was really appreciated the chance to have a close look at this report and to think about the modeling, um, because I was thinking about it in relation to the work that we do within my division on the outlook projections with FAO. One of the things I noticed was um, actually if pre in your baseline, you're projecting increased prices. And I believe that this probably is related also to the fact that you're capturing potential future climate change impacts and how that might, um, that might affect production in the future. For, so it's different from the way that OECD outlook projections move. Um, what the results illustrate really in a very um, stark way is how changing trade distorting support it can affect trade flows, can affect production and can affect prices in the future. And what I think your report does in a really nice way is highlight the trade-offs and synergies um, across these kinds of changes. So some of the key results that popped out for me were um, looking at the relative importance of different categories of WTO support over time 
if countries um, were able to use their full entitlement. So you see that really dramatic graph that shows how important amber box support would be if countries well, would be in 2030 if countries really were able to flex into using their full entitlements. Um, a couple of other interesting insights related to um, moving off of um, concentrating support on specific products. That interesting result for me there was that you can see the positive impacts potentially for poorer economies. Um, and this is attractive because of course it, it addresses some of the fairness issues that we hear um, in terms of criticizing existing WTO frameworks on agriculture. And the, finally, the, the last thing that stuck out to me among many, but a big one was the um, potential real farm income impacts of um, the scenarios where you're, where you're simulating reductions in OTDS. And you can see that this hit, this negative hit is especially large for high income countries. So what's in, what I really like about this analysis is that it has this rigorous examination where you're looking at the way the whole trading system interacts um, based on how this support um, moves through the system. So then if I turn to my second reflection, um, you know, this year we had the UN Food System Summit. So a lot of people are now thinking about how agriculture, how the agricultural sector and agri-food systems need to contribute to multiple objectives. So we're not just talking about farmer livelihoods, we're talking about food security and nutrition, and we're also talking about sustainability. And all three of the previous speakers have made a comment on that. Um, uh, so What's really important is to be able to think about um, uh, these, these differences in the way the, the, the policy changes would affect these different objectives. And what I noticed again in your report is that you're really highlighting farm income and there, there's a real rationale to that in terms of um, how, how trade negotiations evolve and what's underlying the incentives around these kinds of policies. But what's missing a little bit is also thinking about these other objectives, right? So what about the food security and nutrition objectives? What about potential greenhouse gases? Um, I think another layer of this that would be interesting would be to be thinking about the food systems angle um, and navigating across this triple challenge. Um, we also know that transitioning off of distorting support is challenging. Um, and so um, thinking a bit about what kinds of policy mixes are would be important, particularly maybe in relation to your results looking at um, how moving off of OTDS could have implications for farm livelihoods. What are the kind of, what's the basket of policies that could be put in place that would allow a transition to some less distorting world in agriculture support? And then the final um, reflection I'd like to make has to do with predictability and trust. So in the Food Systems Summit, I was surprised that um, trade there wasn't as much attention to some of the issues around agricultural trade as, as there could have been. There was lots of attention on environmental policies, lots of attention on um, nutrition and food security, um, but less about trade. But we know that of course that trade is really critical in terms of effective fun functioning of food systems. We know that we have to be able to move products around the world. We saw during the COVID crisis, how important a well-functioning trading system is in terms of making sure that when there's a shock that the system is able to continue to move products, essential products like food to where they're needed. Um, so there's also a component of trust that's needed in terms of um, consumers and other actors along value chains being able to trust that they'll have what they need in order to produce the products that they need or consume the products that they need. So, um, so what this triggered for me when I was looking at your report was a reflection on how your report highlights how um, changing the rules could actually contribute to building trust. So the first thing that came to mind was that um, changing the rules could address some of the fairness issues. And this was highlighted, um, I think both by Joe and by David, that the existing rules are really capturing historical um, frameworks from decades ago about what the, what the economies looked like in the 1980s and what was going on with ag support then. Um, and there is an imbalance in terms of how those rules are structured in terms of who has access to, for example, the AMS entitlements. And we know when we're looking at food systems that values play a really important role 
when, when different stakeholders are thinking about what kinds of changes they want. And fairness is one of those values that really rings true for most. <laughs> so I thought that was quite an important um, outcome from this report. Also, um, what I thought was important was the fact that um, you stress changing the rules would create more predictability by removing policy space and that that would um, decrease the potential for subsidy subsidy wars. I thought this was really important. And then I it didn't come out so much um, in your presentations, but I thought that your um, work looking at the anti-concentration provisions were pretty interesting when you think about wanting to create food systems that can move flexibly into different areas. Um, so when we think about having um, concentrated subsidies in particular product areas, we can um, project that it's harder for, for those particular sectors to be able to move to adjust to whatever the changing conditions are. And we know that climate change is gonna be a big, um, a big factor in the future. So um, those are my three reflections. Just to say, I think that IFPRI's work really makes a strong contribution to creating the conditions to having informed discussions in these areas, both in relation specifically to WTO, but also to thinking about new food systems challenges. Um, and so I've been really pleased to be a part of this discussion. Thanks, Valeria, over to you. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you so much for highlighting some of the uh, um, some of the things mentioned in the report. But what I really uh, liked from your um, present um, your comments is the introduction of the concept of the multiple objectives that that we did kind of mention it uh, along the way. But you really um, pick that one, which is I think that something very interesting, and maybe we can revisit a little bit. So um, before I, I, I give the floor to uh, Nelson, I would like to remind everyone that please, we want to hear from you. So if you have any questions, if you can please uh, um, include them in Facebook or LinkedIn or YouTube or by using the hashtag Ask in Twitter. Thank you. And with this, Nelson. Well, thanks, uh, Valeria. And thanks, thanks for, for the invitation. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to collaborate with, with you in this, this type of of, of events. Uh, well, as, as you probably all you know, uh, in bilateral or, or regional negotiation for trade agreement, you can discuss about goods, services, intellectual property, environment, standards, e-commerce. But there is something that still remains absent of, of this kind of negotiation, and that is domestic support. Uh, for, for many years, uh, we have been trying to include some language about that topic. And the answer was always the same. Domestic support is part of the multilateral agenda. Uh, in this regard, I, I want to congratulate uh, Joe, David, and you, Valeria, too, uh, for, for not only for the quality of this analysis, but also for contributing to, to, to the debate of, of this very important topic. Uh, as Joe mentions, one of the WTO's greatest uh, achievement is to set a limit uh, on the amount of subsidies for the agricultural sector. So this is this was complemented by the promotion of, of reduction of those subsidies by, by trade negotiation. But negotiation was stagnated, so subsidies remain at the same level that they were established in the Euro one round. Uh, we know that domestic support uh, as a pillar has been central of the agricultural negotiation. And it has been very hard to reach consensus on how to move forward uh, on that area. I think this work, this paper, contribute to find some common ground in order to discuss that. Uh, and I, I like the, the, the comment on regarding water. The, this, this term used to, to, to measure the difference between the consolidated uh, and the applied uh, of a subsidy. Now, with, with, this, with this paper, uh, thank, thank to the authors, that water has been properly measured in terms of, of, of economic impact. So uh, the result helped us to better understand uh, why it's so complex to make progress on, on, on this subject. Uh, you, you mentioned that member could increase more than five times in domestic support without breaking WTO commitment. So it's a, a lot of work, uh, a lot of cuts can be made. In Back in 2017, for the MC11, uh, in INAE Foundation, we wrote a paper uh, on domestic support, uh, trying to measure the impact of total elimination of domestic support. 
Uh, at that time, we found that for countries like Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and, and Uruguay, the elimination of producer support would imply increases in export for all meats, beef, pork, poultry. Uh, also, we found some positive results in milk, rice, wheat, all agricultural products that are very important for, for countries like us. Uh, we are aware, we are conscious that total elimination is an, an, an utopia, but new disciplines are essential for domestic support. The norms that were established during the Uruguay round do not address a reality that differs greatly from what we prevail when they were established. So yeah, I, I, an important thing is that uh, some huge changes have been made in agricultural policies implemented by both developed and developing countries with a notable increase in support to producers granted by emerging economies such as China, India, Indonesia, Turkey, and even Thailand. Also in the last year, we saw many countries increasing their domestic support packages. As examples are well known, Joseph have written a lot about this, the trade war between the United States and China, the African swine fever, and even the COVID-19 pandemic itself. So let me add a little bit more of complexity. <laughs> During the, the C20 meeting in, in July this year, the FAO, Director General said, and I quote, we need to repurpose agricultural subsidies with harmful effects on our climate and biodiversity. So the new environmental agenda with a special focus on more sustainable agricultural production and also trade may become a new excuse for not reducing or eliminating agricultural subsidies. So it is, it's very interesting to see how the focus of the negotiation seems to shift from the reduction or elimination of subsidies to repurpose them. That is, I think, a key, a key issue. So let me end for, with a, a couple of, of, of comments. OTDS is a good way to move forward. Uh, regarding trade distorting support, countries need to establish a global limit. We are all, all agree on that. Uh, but we need to define what will be its nature. It's going to be fixed, it's going to be a floating limit. And also what kind of aid should be applied the, the cap of the reduction. Uh, another topic is, as, as David was mentioned, the disciplines on anti-concentration of subsidies that uh, help to prevent the accumulation of support on a few selected product, uh, diluting commitments. Is, is, uh, then uh, transparency, transparency must be reinforce uh, through commitment to update notification, not only in domestic support, in all WTO areas, because it's very difficult to establish a basis for negotiation and proposals on it if you don't have reliable and up-to-date information. Um, another issue regarding notification is uh, where, where some when some programs should be notified. Some subsidies are uh, on, on agricultural inputs uh, are, are notified as subsidies or on, on number box or sometimes as programs of the 6.2 article of the, of the agreement of agriculture. And finally, as I said, for exporting countries, especially those like lower, like ours, Argentina, do not use this type of measure. Uh, a reduction in subsidies can be highly, highly beneficial. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the authors for this uh, valuable paper. Thank you, Nelson. Muchísimas gracias. Um, and thank you also for bringing the, the idea of repurposing, which is definitely an increasing level of complexity dealing with these topics. But as well, it could create uh, an opportunity. So always talking about challenges and opportunities. I think that that is, that is definitely a key, a key word to, to use and, and a key uh, concept. So with this, I would like to, uh, to, to thank you uh, both um, discussants for, for this. And I will open the... Uh, floor for questions. And uh, right now I have one question for David that Isabella, uh, from Isabella White, um, which is regarding policy changes. Should the goal be that countries 
act independent from their region or could regional decisions uh, yield better results? And I think that also, um, uh, Nelson, you may have um, something interesting to say um, uh, answering this question as well. So if it is okay with you, if David can, can say something first and then right after uh, Nelson, thank you. Thanks, thanks Valeria and thanks for the question. I just want to start by also thanking the, the two discussants and just also acknowledge the very critical role that on one hand OECD is playing. Uh, you know, all of this work will not be possible without the, the policy monitoring that uh, OECD is doing. So really the PSC and we are very lucky because we have also this Ag Incentive Consortium with OECD when we take this into account. So, you know, knowing what are the policies today is the first step in thinking about what it can be tomorrow. And that's really a complementary to all the work done with the WTO notification, because you know you need to not only to see policies from a legal angle, but also from an economic angle. So thanks to, 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 to Leanne, our team, and the whole uh, team at OECD that has spent more than 30 years on, on that. Uh, and also the fact that we, we try to integrate some of their uh, baseline uh, work done with AgLink, Cosimo, and, and FAO. Um, for the sake of time, I will not discuss the dynamic of real prices, but uh, we, we have good explanation for, for that. And I also want to um, say the critical role that institutions like INAI is playing with their analysis of the fact that, you know, if we can say a lot of things, OECD can say a lot of things, but having country-based expertise on this topic is critical to base trust and, and consensus of some of these issues. So we are very lucky to, to have them. Um, now, uh, about the specific question, and sorry if I <laughs> sidewalk. Um, no, I think, yes, regional coordination is, of course, important, especially for um, different places in the world where regional market integration is, is very uh, useful. I mean, there is no mystery if uh, in the US um, it's a federal uh, level policy, and in the European Union, the two things that have been decided to be integrated very early on is common agricultural policy and trade policy. Because at one point, it's a source of tension if uh, your farm policies are uh, going in, in all directions when you want to create a strong market integration. So obviously, um, as it has been said, you know, in bilateral talks or regional talks, it's difficult to put any type of discipline on uh, domestic subsidies. So that's where it's, the WTO can still shine on that. But in terms of policy coordination, obviously regional dialogue will help. Um, and it just varies a lot from one region to another. So that's something that is obviously aspirational that could help you know, to, to make sure that country blocks are moving in the same direction. But uh, as of today, we see a wide range of heterogeneity in terms of what is happening within Mercosur, what, it will happen tomorrow in terms of, uh, of the African continent, even if there is a kind of continental framework with CADEP. CADEP gives a kind of big target, but doesn't really help to do, you know, very good policy coordination so far. So that's where WTO can still provide the framework. Um, stopping here, just maybe one thing. Uh, based on this work, we also have results on greenhouse gas emission, um, um, diets and nourishment, poverty. So I can say that the next step will be to cover some of the points raised by, by Lian. Thanks very much. Well, uh, thanks, thanks, David, for the, for the, the mention of Inai. Uh, well, regarding the regional coordination on, on, this, on this topic, uh, on, the, on the public sector regarding Mercosur, that is the, 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 the regional block of our region, there is no specific, uh, specific coordination regarding subsidies. Uh, but as countries part of the Kairos group, we, we share a common, a common goal of the reduction or elimination of subsidies. Say so. And, and regarding the, the, the food summit, uh, I was listening to Leanne and, and, and his worry about trade. We share that worry. Uh, and as, as a regional group, uh, as a private sector with a global uh, we, we struggle a lot to, to, to insert into, into the agenda the trade uh, as, a, as a very important part of the, of the discussion. And we succeed in, 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 some, in, some, in some part because TRUICA, that is the Inter-American Cooperation Institute of Agriculture, we, we have some outcome regarding trade that we were 
uh, having a, like a continental approach of, of the topic. Uh, and I think we have a, a lot of a lot of work to do. Uh, we have a, a crucial months ahead, uh, expecting for the the new the new data of the MC MC12. Uh, and I think we can we can move forward. I, I I'm not so sure if the MC12 is going to be is going to have some outcome. This is a personal a personal comment uh, uh, regarding subsidies, but I, I think it can be a starting point for discuss that. So it, it's very important to have this this kind of of discussion, this kind of seminar, and this kind of of papers. Thanks. Thank you very much. And I have one question from Charlotte Hebron. Uh, which is OTDS disciplines will not address growing concerns about green box support. Will some green support disciplines be required as well to make this possible? And I will ask uh, Joe and, and, and also Leanne, if you can give just a very, very quick answer, like one minute or so, so that we can, um, we can answer this question. Thank you. I can't talk for less than 10 minutes at a time, so I'll do my best. Uh, yeah, no, I think the uh, it, certainly there have been concerns with Green Box, and that's been uh, th those concerns have been articulated for many years now, uh, dating back to the the, the Doha discussions uh, back in the 2000s. Um, and I think it's time for a review. I think that would be an excellent thing to take on. I think that's something perfect for OECD. I might add, uh, who has done a lot of work in this area. Um, and I guess, let me just stop there. I'll, I'll turn it over to Leanne. After giving me some homework, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, how to respond to this. Um, so I guess part of the monitoring work that the OECD does, um, does draw a distinction between um, what's going on with trade distorting support specifically, but also looking at what the distribution is across other kinds of support that you would need to be able to have resilience and sustainability and productivity in the ag sector. Um, so, uh, so parts of the green box, which are, I think, more non-trade distorting, <laughs> probably do need additional flexibility in a way. So we need more research and development. We need investments in that area. We know that there's underinvestment and we need to make sure that there's gonna be innovation um, and thinking about how the public, what the public sector role is that in that vis-a-vis um, -vis what the private sector would do anyway. Um, at the same time, of course, there's always concerns that because there's such a push now to, um, to really try to, convincingly say that agriculture will be part of a solution to some of the big environmental problems. I think there is a concern that somehow these, um, there could be policies that are, that are framed around environmental objectives that are actually masking trade distorting types of support. And so there's gonna need to be some really careful attention put into those kinds of policies, ideas as they emerge. Thank you very much, um, both of you. So with this, I would like to give the floor to uh, Yo Swinning, Director General of IFRI. Yo, so nice to have you with us. Uh, thanks so much for uh, uh, bringing me in here at the end. Uh, this was a great session. Uh, you know, I grew up as an ag economist uh, when uh, uh, WTO discussion and ag policy discussions were very strongly interlinked and very intensively, I remember, as a young economist, even already then, listening to Joe Glauber on many panels. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm really glad to see that uh, Joe is still active. He's working for a different organization now than then. Uh, so this is, uh, in those days, you know, the cap reform of the, early, the, 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 the 1990s and early 2000s. It was, I was very much uh, working on these things then, the accession of China, the discussion of China and, and Russia to the WTO and how this all affected the, the choices and domestic support, etc. So I'm I'm really pleased to see that um, that there's a lot of uh, really good work done and done by IFPRI as well. And so Leanne, I'm going to quote you that IFPRI researchers make an important contribution in bringing better analysis and insights to the discussion. So it's a pleasure to see. 
I also thought, uh, so I really want to congratulate uh, Joe and David and Valeria and their teams for, for uh, really excellent work, not um, on this report, but on, on a lot of other related issues as well. And I think the point that Nelson pointed out on the shift from the, uh, and the move to the repurposing ag subsidies discussion, and, and Joe and David, of course, and Valeria are very actively involved in that as well. And, and so I think there's a, um, I think the nature of the discussion is obviously difficult, uh, different than, I don't have to explain everybody on this panel, you know, but I mean, the, the repurposing issue is really bringing things back into it. And also, again, you pointed to the issue of values and, and some of the work that the OECD has done recently on that. And I think that a lot of challenges there of, of making this thing, but I think also there's quite a lot of opportunities potential because I think through the repurposing, this whole uh, area of discussion of analysis is really central to the whole food systems transformation debate and I think that is really really important going forward and it's a very important entrance point I think and linking it back and at some point I mean the WTO's discussion have to be central to that as well I think. Okay so congratulations to everybody thanks very much for allowing me to say a few words and, and, and thank you and congratulations again. Back to you Valeria. Thank you, Yo. Thank you very much. And with this, I would like to thank everyone for joining us today for your time. And um, I will, um, I will, I don't know, at least ask like if you can just take a look at the report and the chapter that again the links are at the ICPRI uh, um, page events. And with this, I just want to just give the last thank you to Leanne and Nelson. Uh, it was great to see you, and and thank you very much for for joining us today. Goodbye.